Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 369 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Shannon Applecline. He's written tabletop gaming material for Chaosium, White Wolf, and Wizards of the Coast. And he's also written fiction for Green Knight Publishing and comic books for Skodos Tech. And we'll be speaking with him today about his four-book series, Designers and Dragons, a history of the role-playing industry, which features profiles of over 100 different tabletop gaming companies from the 70s to today. And if you missed it, you should also check out our interview with Matt Barton back in episode 363, in which we discussed his new book, Dungeons and Desktops, The History of Computer Role-Playing Games. And today's show is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And I want to give a special thank you to Anastasia Frolova and Matt Ray, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. All right, so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Shannon Applecline. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Okay, so how did you first get interested in tabletop RPGs? Uh, I first started playing tabletop RPGs when I was 10 or 11, back in the early 80s. Uh, I don't know exactly where I saw the Dungeons & Dragons game, but I do know I asked my dad for a copy of it, and he got for me uh, for my birthday. It was the old uh, red-covered book that uh, was done, done by Tom Moldvay. It's called the BX Edition now. And my problem after I got it was I didn't have anyone to play with it. So my dad, being one of the greatest dads ever, sat down, learned the rules, even though it was the type of thing he didn't really like, and he actually ran a little dungeon for me. Uh, the only thing he wasn't able to figure out were how the combat worked, and so he just came up with kind of choose-your-own-adventure type ways to deal with combat, like there were some skeletons in you, threw rocks at him, so... That was my first experience, and I played uh, role-playing games throughout my teenage years, continued into college, and continue to now. So what would be some of the other games that had the biggest impact on you? Well, after uh, Dungeons & Dragons itself, uh, the second uh, set of games that I played were two ones from Chaosium called uh, Stormbringer and Hawkmoon, which were based on Michael Moorcock's uh, Eternal Champion Heroes. And that kind of got me into Chaosium's entire uh, D100 system. RuneQuest was a big play with me uh, in college. And uh, overall, it's been one of my favorite games. I was uh, very interested in the fandom and very much a part of it, particularly in the 90s. Uh, the other game that had a very big influence on me, uh, and it was something I learned at college where I learned a lot of my... Um, games that kind of went further out beyond D&D was a small press game called Ars Magica, which was done by two utterly unknown people at the time named uh, Jonathan Tweed and Mark Reinhagen, who of course went on to do much bigger games, uh, Dungeons and Dragons 3rd Edition and Vampire the Masquerade, respectively. Um, since then, uh, I've... Uh, done any number of things in more recent years i've become really interested in the indie gaming scene mainly because of my work on designers and dragons where i learned about all these cool things out there so one of my most recent games that i feel was pretty influential on me was luke crane's burning wheel um pin dragon is also in there uh, somewhere is another thing uh, done by greg stafford and chaosium but kind of different from their d100 very much about um figuring out how to 
have a game that was all about knights being knights and uh, people having personality traits and families and things that went a lot beyond the uh, standard designs of uh, dungeon crawls that you'd find in Dungeons and Dragons. But I still play Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder too. I uh, pretty recently ran long campaigns for both of them. Now, when you say that you started getting involved with fandom, sort of what form did that take? Uh, I uh, have always been a writer. And so in the 90s, uh, RuneQuest was kind of dying out because uh, Avalon Hill, who had the license at the time, had first stopped publishing Glorantha stuff and then stopped publishing very much that was very good and uh, eventually killed the game entirely. And uh, during that time, this very rich uh, magazine fandom rose up. Uh, Tales of the Reaching Moon out of the UK was the first big magazine in that era. And a number of others started coming out. Trade Talk, uh, the Book of Drastic Resolutions, and a number of others. So I started interacting with some of these people online. This was the uh, early 90s, and so there were mailing lists and digest where you could talk with people online. Uh, and from there, I got involved and started writing for some of the fanzines. Uh, Trade Talk, uh, which is a German fanzine, is the one that I did the most writing for. A little bit of RuneQuest stuff and a little bit of stuff for Chaosium's other games. Uh, I also worked for uh, Book of Drastic Resolutions, which put out uh, three issues of a very nice fanzine here in the U.S., and uh, did some other scattered writing for 10 or 15 years. And I'd also done a little bit of that for Ars Magica previous to RuneQuest, just, you know, four or five articles for a couple of different magazines. I mean, because you, you were working full-time at Chaosium for a while, right? I was. That was afterward. I think I worked at Chaosium from 1996 to 1998. To a certain extent, it kind of came out of the fanzine and other interests. The one other thing I did is, Right after college, I started putting out my own electronic digest called the Chaosium Digest, and that was kind of a foot in the door. It let me write Chaosium material. It let me collect together other people's, and it let the people at Chaosium know who I was. So when they were very momentarily uh, doing quite well, thanks to the <laughs> Mythos card game and hiring, uh, I was able to go on there for two years and they started doing very not well again, also because of the Mythos card game. Yeah, you said in the book that there was a period of time toward the end where nobody was getting paid, that you were working there? Uh, I was getting paid. Uh, I was the only person that was getting paid. What happened was the whole CCG collectible card game uh, fad had a very large effect on the role-playing industry, uh, and that's because Wizards of the Coast obviously debuted the format and uh, showed how successful it was, and so a lot of role-playing companies started putting out their own. Chaosium was one of these. They put out something called the Mythos CCG. It was innovative and very successful. Um, they Each time they put out a new set, they were getting more orders than, than the previous, and at some point, uh, the people at Chaosium said, hey, we don't really like the fact that all of our money is going to the CCG. If we ever have a failure with this, it will kill the whole company because there is so much money in this right now. Uh, and so they came up with this idea of coming out with what they called a standard set. Uh, and the standard set was a non-collectible set that was totally compatible with the collectible sets. Uh, the idea was to let them put out a product that could stay on shelves, that could get people into the game, and that wouldn't have the same highs and lows as uh, 
a collectible card game, did where it either brings you huge amounts of money or puts you out of business. It's actually a model that's been used very successfully more recently by fantasy flight games in general who did their living card games. But for Chaosium, this was 1997, I think, and no one really understood what they were doing, and the distributors told them to print huge numbers of it like it was a collectible game. And Chaosium, much to their deficit, listened to their distributors, did this, and by the time it came in, the distributor said, no, we don't necessarily want that many of that game. And so by the time I was in my last six to nine months at Chaosium, which I think was 98, um, we had a pallet of Mythos Standard game set, which was six to nine feet tall sitting out in our warehouse, unsold. Uh, we had not sold enough to pay for the print run. Uh, role-playing companies, any publishing company, they're all about cash flow, about getting money in from the last product and immediately putting it out to print the next product. And we'd killed our cash flow because it was all sitting in those boxes of Mythos Standard game. And so we couldn't print things. And so uh, most of my work was layout at Chaosium. I did some editorial too. And so in those six to nine months, I started taking my books, putting them on a desk next to my uh, computer, and going on to the next book. And by the time I left, I had six, seven, eight books that took another two to five years to actually get printed. Uh, most of the other people had been laid off by that time. Uh, we had the couple of owners, Greg Stafford, Lynn Willis, and Charlie Crank, who had stopped taking salaries because they couldn't afford it. And uh, just before I was getting ready to go, the last couple of other people left. And so there was literally no one else getting a paycheck but me and my paychecks were often coming in a week or two late uh, on a semi-monthly paycheck so it was a bad time but it's really not untypical for the uh, role-playing industry which has really narrow margins like a lot of game publishing does so then after that sort of between the time that you left chaosium and the time that you started on designers and dragons what was your involvement with role-playing well, right after uh, Chaosium, I was very burned out. Um, I didn't go to a con for years afterward. I still barely go to cons. I was barely buying role-playing books. I was barely playing role-playing games. Um, I uh, immediately went over to uh, a company called Certicom, which was a cryptography company. Uh, that's kind of more what I'm professionally trained to do, I, uh, technical writing, and so I do a lot of work with uh, cryptography patents and other stuff that uh, a lot of people in the gaming industry would probably find very, very boring. <laughs> and that continued on for a few years. But the thing is, the person that I went to work for at uh, Certicom, uh, now a longtime friend named Christopher Allen, I met him at a gaming convention. And so after he got out of Certicom and did a few other things, he started up an online game company. And after he started up the online game company, uh, an online game site called RPGNet was in dire straits because it had been sold to a dot-com company and that had fallen through. And he said, hey, I would be willing to uh, purchase that site and you know give you a place to run it and all of that. And so I kind of ended up back in the role-playing industry semi-accidentally. Though, like I said, it was because the person I'd begun working for, I'd met at a gaming convention. RPGNet is actually what directly led me to Designers and Dragons. As we expanded the site and I programmed things on the site, because I also do programming, 
one of the new features I decided to add was a gaming index where we could uh, index and uh, list all of the role-playing products that had ever been produced, which was semi-feasible when we started it <laughs> in 2005 or so. And with the huge advent of PDFs has become almost impossible. Um, and as I was uh, coding that, I started entering stuff from my collection and I got to a company called Imperium Games, and they were a uh, producer of Traveler after GDW went out of business in the mid-90s. I'd bought most of their early products, but then I'd stopped buying games after I left Chaosium. And all I knew is that they weren't around anymore. And so I put in all of my material. I found a couple of things I didn't own and put that into, and I said, what happened to these guys? And that's what got me started on Designers and Dragons. And then you decided to do basically the same thing for like a hundred other companies. <laughs> it, it was in a few steps. Uh, Imperium Games was the first history I wrote. It was not the first history I published because there were some weird questions in the company about whether money had been stolen uh, and other things that I wasn't quite ready to address right away. But given my long history with Chaosium, I said, "Hey, writing that first history was kind of fun." How about I write one for Chaosium, too? And that one, again, got slightly sidelined, and eventually the first one I published was Wizards of the Coast. And when I say published, again, most of my effort was going to RPGNet at this time, uh, and I was always looking for ways that I could personally contribute things that would kind of um, model the kind of content that we wanted to see. And I said, hey, these histories that I've been playing around with would be good content for RPGNet. And so I published... Several of the histories, I was managing about one a month. Sometimes I'd break them up. I started going further and further into other companies that I had experience with. Uh, and after I'd done a dozen or so of them, a publisher contacted me and said, hey, we'd really like to turn these into a book. And I hadn't been in the uh, role-playing publishing uh, side of things mm, for five, ten years at that point. Uh, and so I hadn't even been thinking about it at that level, but I said, sure. Uh, and then I learned how much work it would be to actually put together 40 histories or so for a book. And I put them together in a, you know, increasingly insane set of uh, late night uh, work periods because it was always something I was doing after the actual paying job. Uh, and then I got done with that and the first publishing deal fell through for various reasons but then I was able to uh, do it at a more uh, leisurely rate. And we had maybe 60 by the time the first edition published with Mongoose and maybe a hundred by the time the second and currently definitive edition published through my current publisher, who is evil hat. So the way the hundred got done was in little steps, kind of one stage of publishing at a time. And you say in the book that somehow um, the Ends Game bookstore was involved in this uh, book coming about? So uh, Ends Game, uh, unfortunately now, was a uh, game store located in Oakland, California. Really great community because they didn't just look at, hey, we want to sell games. They said, hey, we want to create a community of gamers and obviously we will sell games to them. And so they had a great play space, and I've met any number of people there. 
one of the people that I met there was Chris Hanrahan, who was one of the owners of the store. Chris Hanrahan was also the mm, business officer. I forget the exact title because it's changed a few times at Evil Hat. And so I think he knew I'd done the original edition of the book through Mongoose and had been saying, hey, if this ever comes free, please talk to me and we'd love to have it at Evil Hat. And so the Mongoose edition came out. I'm really happy that they published it. Uh, They published it in a much smaller print run than I would have liked. I think there were about 750 copies of the original pseudo leather bound edition that Mongoose did. And it didn't really have as much marketing or editing as I would have liked to see. And so it got to the point where they'd sold out. It was six months later. Uh, I always try and be real careful with my contracts that I can reclaim rights to my content if things go out of print. And so when that happened, I talked to Evil Hat. They said they'd still be uh, happy to publish it. Chris, I'm certain, heavily pushed uh, on it and is the reason it said Evil Hat. And then I reclaimed the rights from Mongoose and pushed it over. Uh, In-game also had uh, some other effects in that I met people who were involved with Evil Hat. Uh, I met people who were involved with the indie scene because in-game was always uh, very proactive about pushing indie games. Uh, And so all of that added to the content of what was in the book too. But absolutely the second edition of the book and the one that's still in print would not have come about without in-game. Unfortunately, in-game closed just about uh, seven months ago. It closed in January. And so they aren't around anymore, but the community that they created is still uh, here and there in other places in Oakland. And obviously the effects of what they still created are there uh, in my own Designers and Dragons and and other uh, games and books which had their origins there. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it looks like to get it into print, you had a Kickstarter that raised over $100,000, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, we did. It was uh, a very successful Kickstarter Uh, I was, Designers and Dragons was, I feel like a lot of my products, I get really enthused about something, and I'm never really sure if there's an audience or not. With Designers and Dragons, I'd always gotten a lot of um, comments and interest from people on the net when I produced it, but it was a real question of how well would that translate to a printed product. And Mongoose didn't tell us a lot since they'd only done 750 copies of it. The... Um, actual Kickstarter that we did was one of uh, Evil Hat's best. They've done a few better. I think their Fate Core did better. Their Dresden uh, card game did better. Uh, and we just got a huge amount of support. Uh, it probably helps that we did Kickstarter it for what was four books. And so you say it was over 100000 and it definitely was. But on the other hand, it was about 25000 a book. And so, you know, that's not quite the same notable level there but it was definitely enough to say hey we want to do this book there's interest here and i hope there's going to be interest for other books that i'm putting out in the future on the topic yeah and i just want to say i mean i'm kind of in awe of these books i just i just can't almost can't believe that something like this exists there's so much detail there's so many uh cover illustrations and just so many you know facts and figures and financial things i mean could you just talk about the, the scale of this project and how much help did you have uh, gathering all this information? Right. Um, 
the scale of the project was obviously huge. And the only way that it possibly came about was doing one article at a time, one company at a time. If I had ever looked and said, hey, I need to put out four books, <laughs> which together were like half a million words or something, I probably would have run in the other direction. Um, but I would, I got a process down where I decided the company that I wanted to write about. I extensively researched them as much as I could. Uh, for the older companies, this usually involved going through magazine collections. For newer companies, this often involved going through the internet. Uh, my prime sources were often uh, game design articles about how people designed games, interviews, particularly interviews done at the time as opposed to much later. Um, and for more recent stuff, there were obviously press releases uh, and other uh, press and marketing articles done by companies. Once I, uh, as I collected these things, I'd kind of throw them all into a file. And after I had all of the uh, content, I would try and figure out, hey, how does this all make sense as a story? Because I, I feel at least for the histories that I'm trying to write, that I'm trying as much to provide a narrative as just a, a cold listing of events. And obviously the narrative needs to encompass the cold listing of events, but I feel like there really are stories that can be told in any history, hence the name. Um, once I got all of that done and kind of organized, I'd then write everything up. And sometimes when I wrote things up, I'd list myself questions, which were often the details that you uh, discussed, because sometimes they were in the material I found, and sometimes they weren't. And at that point, that's when I'd go to other people. I would then try and hunt out any principals from the company who could give me information. I'd send them a complete draft of what I'd written. I'd ask them specific questions. And they'd send it back, and sometimes they'd say, hey, this is all great. It sounds exactly like what we did. I don't know how you figured it out. And sometimes they'd say, I can't believe you got this so wrong. I'm <laughs> very angry at this. I need you to fix it. And, you know, if anything, the latter feedback was more helpful than the former, obviously. Uh, and at that point, I'd revise it, send it around a few more times, and we'd eventually lock something down. So that was the whole process. The... As I got further into things, the first stage would usually take about a week. And I say a week, but that's kind of a week in my free time. So maybe 10 hours, 15 hours for an average company. And then the back and forth of finishing it would linger for time afterwards. Right. Well, and there's definitely a lot of stories, like you were saying, in this book. And I'm I'm not that familiar with the sort of behind-the-scenes aspects of the tabletop role-playing industry. You know, I played... You know, I'd say I know a lot about second edition Dungeons and Dragons, and I know a lot about Amber Diceless role playing. And mm -hmm. my knowledge of the fields, other than that, is pretty spotty. So I, I was there was a lot in this that really surprised me. And, and one of the things that really surprised me was just how much, how many stories there were about fraud, embezzlement, lawsuits, and people just having mental breakdowns and disappearing from the industry. Um, yeah. Would you say that the tabletop RPG industry has an unusually high amount of those things or, or, or not? It's hard for me to say because I don't know what that would look like for another industry. Um, certainly the board game industry is another industry that I'm a big fan of. And 
I am aware of a few lawsuits that have uh, occurred in that industry. I don't know of many. I'm not aware of many situations of embezzlement and fraud, um, though every once in a while nowadays you see Kickstarters that go horribly awry. Um, I'm not aware of many cases of mental breakdown, but I don't know if I'd find all of those if I really dug in like I did with the role-playing industry. With the role-playing industry, I similarly could have said to you before I wrote this, oh yeah, I know about when Palladium sued Wizards of the Coast. Oh yeah, I know that there were lawsuits between Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax and a couple of other people involved at TSR. But I don't know that I could have told you the depth of that. With all of that said, just kind of factually, I feel like there is a lot of it in the industry. And I know I've had at least one person who read it who said that he was amazed for how such a small industry with such small margins where there just wasn't a lot of money involved <laughs> comparatively, that there was so much drama. You said that you actually got a like a cease and desist from TSR once? I did. Uh, back in the 90s, I was... Uh, helping to administer a machine at Berkeley called soda.berkeley.edu. This was in the early days of the internet, well before it became commercial, well before most people had access to it. But since I had administrative control of this, you know, powerful internet-connected machine uh, at UC Berkeley, and since there were these mailing lists where people were putting great content, I said, hey, I'd like to uh, start collecting some of this content. And so I collected some content for Ars Magica. I think by then I was running the Ars Magica mailing list. And for some other games, games I should note that were not uh, D&D, and then TSR in the mid-90s got really nasty about the Internet and started sending everyone cease and desist letters if they were uh, hosting any D&D content. And one of the ones they sent to was me, though I wasn't hosting any D&D content, just Ars Magica, probably RuneQuest was the other one by then. Uh, it kind of shows that besides the fact that they were being very nasty to their fans, they weren't being very <laughs> careful about what they were doing. And so... Uh, you know, this was my college years. I was young and feisty and angry, and I sent a very, very angry uh, letter back to them that said something to the effect of, not only am I not hosting any D&D contact, but I'd rather poke my eyes out with a dull stick before I did, because you are scumbags. And <laughs> never heard back from them. But I think part of what I wrote uh, in Designers and Dragons itself was, you know, yeah, that made me really angry. I didn't play any D&D games until 1988 or 89. I have to believe that it made a lot of other people very angry, too. Uh, the Internet was a lot smaller uh, place by then, but it kind of felt to me part of the story of how TSR was really spiraling down and that, you know, they were turning even on their fans at this point. Right. And it's so weird, like you said, that the stakes are so small and there were so many lawsuits that it seems like really harms the industry as a whole and that everybody would have been better off just chilling out a little bit. Well, I, I totally believe that. And when I say the stakes are small, the one company that the stakes weren't small for were TSR. You know, they had 100, 200, 300 employees at the top. 
They were making tens of millions of dollars. They were a very large company. Uh, but they were also the source of a lot of the lawsuits. They weren't helping the industry. Uh, there were also other lawsuits like the one I mentioned between uh, Palladium and Wizards of the Coast that they just didn't do anyone any good. And uh, the interesting thing about the Palladium lawsuit was Palladium sued Wizards of the Coast over a game book called The Primal Ardor, where they'd included stats for a lot of different games. And they'd been very careful about it. Um, the general legal consensus at the time, which which they got, was that you could do that type of thing because it wasn't protected by derivative copyright as long as you were very careful of the trademarks. And they were very careful. But Kevin Ciambita has always been very... Um, He's been very strident in control of his properties and in what he believes is right in the industry. So he sued. And what almost happened as a result is Wizards of the Coast almost didn't come out with Magic the Gathering because that was the product that they had on the edge of their uh, production schedule at the time. In fact, they created a separate company at the time to hold the Magic the Gathering IP so that it wouldn't accidentally get swept up into this. But if this hadn't been settled... Who knows if they would have been able to come out with it. And you could certainly say that when you're looking at the role-playing industry, that the collectible card game uh, fad was maybe more bad than good. But when you just look at the innovation of our hobbyist industries and overall, not coming out of with that would have been horrible. There are so many people that have greatly enjoyed Magic and Pokemon and the many other CCGs there. And that's just one example where a lawsuit, you know, almost killed something really innovative. And there's probably a lot more cases we don't know of where lawsuits did. I mean, one thing that really struck me reading the book was I think most people think about having uh, an office and employees as kind of the first step for running a business. But it seems like in the tabletop industry, that's sort of the um, the peak of success is if you actually have an office and employees. Yeah, that's that's very accurate. Uh, when I worked at uh, Chaosium, when I started working there, they had 11 employees, and that was really great for a role-playing company. Um, I think maybe in the 80s and 90s, it was more likely that a role comp role-playing company did have an actual office and did have actual employees. But the 80s and 90s were certainly the peak of success of the role-playing industry before maybe the modern day. Um, the modern day has changed things a lot. Um, Imperium Games, who, as I mentioned, is as the company that really got me started in writing the designers and Dragon's Histories, they're also the first company I know of that was a decent-sized company that did not try and have a central base of operations. What they did instead was they had uh, all of these employees, most of whom were previous TSR employees, as it happens, scattered across um, mostly the United States, I believe. And they'd come together for a big summit uh, in the Great Lakes area once a year. Uh, I believe it was around Gen Con or Argens. But they were really groundbreakers in that. Kind of at that period, you had two things. You had the companies who were big enough to have offices, and you had the publishers. I wouldn't even call them companies. who were just one or two people doing it as a hobby you know, in their free time like I do Designers and Dragons as a hobby right now in my free time. In the uh, 21st century, I think a couple things have happened. I feel like generally the role-playing industry doesn't have the same chance for high success of smaller companies as it did 
in the 20th century. Wizards of the Coast certainly says that Dungeons and Dragons is doing as well as it ever has been, and there's uh, a lot of indications that it's doing very, very well. But I suspect you'd find there aren't a lot of other companies that are at the level of companies like GDW, uh, Ice, uh, Hero Games in the 80s and 90s who were able to have their you know, own studios. And at the same time, we have PDFs, which allow easier publication. We have um, the internet, which makes it easier to communicate. And so I think a lot more people are falling into this level of, hey, just a couple of people doing a hobby are, you know, maybe several people now doing a hobby and we can, you know, do it professionally. The internet in general has been a game changer. Chaosium, who I've mentioned a few times, they don't have a central office anymore. They were, there was a large changing of the guard of the company a few years ago, and they're now scattered across uh, the world, uh, Australia, Germany, the United States. Well, right, and and to sort of underscore that point about how close-knit and small the industry has become, I mean, a lot of these um, games that you mentioned as being successful games or, um, you know, groundbreaking or setting the standard and things, you know, the they have print runs of 1,000, 500, 250, things like that. Yeah, I think a lot of the indie games are probably in the uh, 100 to 1,000 range. I think anything you see in a game store nowadays is still going to have a print run of a thousand or more, but they're all relatively small. I know when I was working at Casium in the nineties, uh, our minimum print run was somewhere in the 2000 range. When we uh, did a new rule book, we'd be five to 6,000. And I don't think a lot of people are doing that nowadays. Wizards of the Coast clearly is. Paizo clearly is. Uh, fantasy flight games is though a lot of their interest nowadays is in board games instead which has been a general trend uh, and you start going down from there and I could probably name several others and miss several others Modifius, Green Ronin but maybe you're at less than a dozen companies who are regularly doing print runs of 2000 plus I think a lot of stuff is a lot smaller press than people would guess but I mean, one thing that was striking was that with Kickstarter, even if you only have 500 people interested in a game, if those 500 people are really, really interested in that game, uh, you can, uh, you know, gather up a lot of money to to keep making products for that game. I, I feel like Kickstarter has been a savior of the industry to a large amount. Certainly, there's uh, the possibility for Kickstarters to go horribly wrong. When I say Chaosium just recently came under new management, that's primarily because Kickstarter killed the old company. They overpromised. They didn't take into account shipping rates. These are primarily problems that we understand at this point now. We just didn't in the early years of Kickstarter. The biggest thing about Kickstarter that the average fan may not understand is that Kickstarter really works for publishers because they get to sell directly to the fans. Usually what happens is that a publisher sells to a distributor who sells to a retailer. And what that means is that the publisher usually gets uh, 40% of the sale price of the item. They sell it on Kickstarter, they get 100%. And that makes a huge difference in how large or small of a print run you can print. 
the other advantage about Kickstarter is that it largely takes away the concerns about cash flow. Uh, I told you that when I worked for Chaosium, we'd usually see the money come in from one product and then immediately go out to the next product that was waiting to go to the printers. With Kickstarter instead, you get from the fans, uh, we're not supposed to say they're pre-orders, Kickstarter says they're not pre-orders, <laughs> but they're the next closest thing. Uh, and so you don't have to wait for your previous book to be successfully sold. When you have a product that the fans will be interested in, you can put it out there and they will help you get published. It's it's kind of an amazing empowerment of the people that greatly advantages publishers. You do say, though, that if, if you're selling directly to your customers, and especially if you're only publishing PDFs, that it makes it very hard to attract new fans because they're not coming across your games in, in retail stores? That's certainly always been my concern. Um, I was, I, I could be wrong also, but it's certainly always been my concern. I feel like a lot of the companies that have tried to go the uh, only online method, uh, White Wolf was the, were the people who really uh, led that charge. Um, but we've also seen it from the Harn books for a while were not available from game stores it certainly feels like there is less room for attraction there. I mean, game stores are big marketing havens for uh, publishers. They're places that people can go in and see their uh, books on shelves and page through them. And even if you just look at like retail online, we still haven't figured out how to recreate that experience where you can kind of scroll through a bookcase of books and page through the ones that you like. Um, but on the other hand, some people are doing very well with their Kickstarter online methodologies, but I think it's because they're mixing it with uh, traditional methodology and maybe also really pushing on social media as well. It's quite possible that as time goes on, we're going to have to figure out how to better attract a new audience as we're using these newer uh, online methodologies for sales, but we're not there yet. And so it's a pretty uncomfortable time. I feel like for companies that are trying to go online only. Do you ever feel uh, tempted to start your own company or do you ever, uh, would you ever be like a consultant for uh, startup RPG companies or anything like that? Um, uh, no and no. <laughs> um, I think once uh, you read designers and dragons, you would see how you'd have to be really, really enthusiastic and optimistic and almost self-sacrificial to want to create a role-playing company. I have huge respect for the people that do, but that's because I know exactly how hard it is to do it. Um, consulting is just something that doesn't particularly interest me because, you know, I'm a researcher, a writer, I don't want to get locked down with one company and telling them things that I picked up from this. I'd, I'd love them to learn it from the books. Uh, and I say that, but actually I think I'm going to probably create a little company for designers and dragons just to kind of hold my IP and protect it, but not a publishing company. I would like someone else to do that still. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I feel like anyone who is interested in writing or publishing tabletop role-playing games should read this series of books because there's just so much, as I said, so much information in here. And I almost feel like 
even if you're not particularly interested in tabletop games, if you're just interested in business, you would want to read this series because it's just so many examples of how people start companies, what goes wrong, what occasionally goes right. You know, there's just so much that you can learn from from all these different case studies. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, certainly, I always tried when I was writing the articles to not just relate the history, but also to kind of abstract out some of the lessons and perhaps even more so to connect up the trends and the things that were happening at different places. Uh, I also took the opportunity of individual uh, company histories to say, hey, what can this tell us about the uh, kind of larger world of role-playing or of business? And so, for example, the piece of publishing article, which appears in the Odd Odds book, has a lot of information in it about magazine publishing and what goes right and wrong there. Uh, there's actually a, a chapter in there called something like uh, Tinker Ship in the Dark or something like that, which was a quote from one of the principals at Pezo talking about how magazine publishing in uh, this era is probably gone now. Uh, it was like trying to you know, steer a tinker ship in the dark. You had no idea where you were going. You couldn't see the obstacles, and it could be disastrous uh, at any moment. Um, but certainly, I, I tried to look at, hey, what are the things that have gone right again and again and have gone wrong again and again? And so I hope that information would be relatively available to people, even if it wasn't quite the top purpose of the uh, histories in Designers and Dragons. I mean, one of the pieces that I abstracted out is that you should be careful with licensing. And I, I thought this was striking in one of the notes. You say, uh, for other gaming material in IP Hell, read Skyrealms Publishing or any licensed game ever. Yeah. Um, licensing has had a very interesting history in the uh, role-playing industry. Um, and there's two different types of licensing there. There's role-playing companies that have licensed properties from fiction usually. And then there are role-playing companies that have licensed other role-playing companies. And back in the 70s and 80s, it was all really casual. And I know of a couple of different companies who got like lifetime licenses from uh, people like Michael Moorcock. And I think that was also the case for the token license. And, you know, nowadays there's very strict licenses that, you know, have very limited times and could be killed at any point and uh, could be, uh, you know, greatly delayed because people had to look over permissions. And so I, I feel like licensing has a couple of dangers that just can leap out and bite you. One is that you put a lot of work into really, you know, expanding and improving a property uh, which, for example, West End Games did back in the 80s with the Star Wars game. Um, it's kind of weird to think of now, but after the original trilogy of movies, Star Wars was essentially dead, and the only people that were actively developing it were West End Games. And they put huge amounts of work into it, and you know now they're not there, and Star Wars has moved on a few times. Um, the other danger is, Besides losing all of this work that you've done, you can also lose all of your uh, products because suddenly you don't have the ability to print them anymore and maybe even sell them anymore. And I feel like this has become even more acute in the age of PDFs 
something that uh, impacts fans maybe more than publishers in that entire lines that were only available or primarily available as electronic documents are suddenly gone from the earth, as it were. There's just no way to purchase them anymore because they're no longer legally sellable. So despite the fact that there's all these dangers, publishers clearly find them very profitable as well because you look at a lot of the big-name companies now and they're publishing huge numbers of licensed works. Uh, Cubicle 7 has Doctor Who and any other number of licensed games. Uh, Modifius is publishing a lot of uh, Swedish games, among other things. Uh, Green Ronin recently put out The Expanse. So I just hope that people are more cognizant of the dangers at this point. I mean, you mentioned that there was the Michael Moorcock game. There were actually a lot of games based on works by fantasy and science fiction authors that I, I had no idea that these even existed. I mean, I, I came across there's games based on David Drake, Lois McMaster Bujold, Terry Pratchett, Charles Strauss, Jim Butcher, Larry Niven, Glenn Cook, Jack Vance, and Larry Correa were just ones I wrote down. I mean, I had no idea there was such a there were so many of those. Well, I think a lot of the uh, role playing industry. Uh, a lot of the professionals in the industry were people who are also fancy and science fiction fans. Uh, if you look at the original edition of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, it had the infamous Appendix N, which was the set of books that Gary Gygax thought would be of interest in to help people figure out how to run their D&D games. Uh, Tolkien's in there, though he says it wasn't a very big influence. Conan... Fafford and the Grey Mouse, or uh, a lot of other uh, sword and sorcery uh, fantasy from the uh, 50s, 60s, uh, I guess probably the very start of the 70s. And I think that's continued, but probably one in two games that you see uh, that are based on licenses, I wouldn't be surprised if they're based on licenses because someone was a really big fan of a property and said, hey, I think I can do a great game of that. and, you know, the other one and two are probably someone said, hey, I think we can make great money on that. <laughs> um, but as I said, for myself personally, uh, Chaosium's Hawkmoon and Stormbringer games were two of the ones that really expanded the industry for me. I, I still have my original boxes for those games on the shelf right next to me here. Um, I think for the most part, I'm personally more interested in either creating my own worlds or playing with worlds that... Uh, people have created specifically for role-playing games, but I've certainly got my uh, small share of licensed games on my shelves. We're all fans. I mean, do you think that those, if it's like the um, the Larry Niven game or the Lois McMaster Bushold game, are those do people mostly collect those kind of because they like those books and they're fans of the series and it's kind of a curiosity, or are there a lot of people actually playing something like that? I think that one of the secrets of the role-playing industry is that people buy a lot more books to read and are put on their shelves than they will ever, ever play. Um, I, I think that role-playing supplements in, uh, in particular tend to be read and not necessarily played. I think that probably goes right over to all of those licensed games. I'm a big fan of Larry Nevin, and so I have his Ringworld game uh, on my shelf and its supplement, and I don't think I've ever played it. 
uh, it's another of Chaosium's games. And so, you know, maybe I tried it once, but it, it's unlikely I ever have. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people. It's kind of fun to see uh, these worlds that you've read about statistically defined. And a lot of these licensed games also do these miraculous jobs of really developing the uh, world and showing it in detail that you never would have seen in the actual book. Uh, Ice's Middle Earth role-playing was one of the first really extensive licensed lines. It was uh, in the 80s primarily. And uh, they just did an amazing job putting out supplement after supplement, you know, chunky 60, 80 page supplements that extensively detailed individual lands in middle earth, uh, at a level that, you know, you would never see even in the very extensive Lord of the Rings books. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, the star Wars, uh, role-playing game that was put out by Weston games was also considered really groundbreaking for how much it detailed the world to the point that, uh, when the uh, fiction series started going again uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, whenever it was, the fiction authors were sent copies of a lot of the Western books as great source material. So, yeah, I think a lot of it probably is unread. I know that a lot of it's played, too, because you see people talking about it. But if a lot of it's being just, you know, read instead of played, it's because there's such great material in there that supplements your experience in reading the books, seeing the TV shows, watching the movies, whatever. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't have a lot of behind-the-scenes knowledge of the industry, but I have always sort of suspected that that most RPG books are perused rather than played. Um, you know, I've always sort of wondered how how many people really can learn the rules of a 300-page book, let alone... 10, you know, 10 books of rules about a game. And uh, so, so on that, this line kind of jumps out at me. So um, you say, uh, while working with his Shadowrun freelancer, Boyle learns that even Shadowrun's top designers didn't understand its complex rules. Yeah, I, I think that's in general the case. Uh, rule systems can become very complex. A lot of them are very complex out of the uh, uh, book. Uh, I know that when I played first edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons back in the 80s, we never played it by the rules, and that's because some of the rules were so complex and convoluted that we just threw them out and used something simpler. Uh, I think it's relatively rare that people play precisely by the rules, and that may be because they don't understand them, it may be because they don't like them, uh, whichever. Uh, I think I think it's possible to learn most role-playing games from the books. I think I've learned many from the books, but who knows? Because <laughs> it's also integrated with maybe you played it with someone else first. Um, maybe you uh, you know saw a video nowadays, an actual play online. Um, but it goes all the way back to the dawn of the uh, industry. When you look at how D&D came out in 1974... I think no one felt like they could really learn it accurately from the role book. And uh, so you actually had very distinctive styles of play developing in different parts of the country because these were parts of the country that had very diverse groups of people who weren't interacting with each other. And so they understood the roles in different ways. We've gotten a lot better since then, but it's still a pretty tricky subject to figure out. Um, we've had a lot of work with what are called quick starts where, uh, 
publishers try and uh, uh, publish an easy set of the rules that will be easily accessible to people, usually as part of an adventure. That's clearly still a learning process. Uh, any, any game is a little hard to learn from the rules, and role-playing games are pretty complex as games go. I was really struck by, there's a game called Aftermath, and you said that it had 27 hit locations for a dog, including two distinct tail hit locations. Yeah. Aftermath was a uh, game put out by FGU. It was, uh, I think, FGU. But it was in the 80s. And the 80s, there tend to be trends for how the role-playing industry developed in each decade. And one of the the, uh, trends of the 80s was definitely complexity. Uh, Games aren't that complex now, though you certainly see some streams of development that are. The uh, D&D 3E, uh, game was fairly complex. Pathfinder still is at least through the first edition that's uh, out there right now. So you still see some of that, but not as much as in the 80s with games like Aftermath. Well, so talk about this this concept of the fantasy heartbreaker. That was a new term to me. Yeah. Fantasy heartbreaker was a term that was originated by Ron Edwards in an article that he produced. Uh, Ron Edwards... Um, basically suggested that a lot of people came up with their own versions of D&D, not seeing how the rest of the industry worked, and they uh, repeated a lot of the ideas that had been already seen by the rest of the industry. Um, When Edwards wrote the article, one of the things he was saying was, hey, all of these uh, games have been, uh, you know, dumped into the dustbin of history, but there was really great stuff in them, and there was really great enthusiasm. And so even though they didn't do well because they weren't as original as the designers thought they were, there still might be little things in there that we could find. The term more generally now has come to mean, oh, those games that are just copies of D&D, and they have a skill system because the designer never played anything but D&D. Well, right, and that was one thing that really struck me reading the 2000s, um, volume of Designers and Dragons was just how much innovation there's been um, in the indie space and how, I, I mean, I would really strongly recommend anyone who's thinking about designing an RPG to, to read this and just see how many new, um, you know, dynamics, new you know, rule systems and things have, have uh, you know, been bandied about in recent years. Yeah, the indie revolution has been amazing and it was mostly started by Ron Edwards, who I I just talked about. He uh, did a great job of uh, really enabling other people to do indie games through his uh, support of The Forge, which was an online site for talking about indie games, through support of other indie publishers at Gen Con. Um, In Designers and Dragons, the uh, arts, there's a couple different sections which are all about indie publishers. And as I said, when I wrote a company article, I always tried to figure out what other things can I talk about in this article that kind of show larger trends. And so in those articles, it tends to be, hey, what great new mechanics did people talk about? And you say there's been a lot of innovation, and it's really been extraordinary. Uh, You go from 1974, when uh, D&D came out, to 1999, I think, was when uh, Ron Edwards came out with his professional uh, version of Sorcerer, which was his first game. And there was certainly innovation in the industry, but it tended to be mechanical innovation. You know, 
skill systems, uh, different ways to do experience. It was, uh, it, it kind of slightly changed the way you thought about role-playing games instead of totally innovating it. And there were exceptions. Uh, Greg Stafford's Pendragon looked at, you know, families and passions and personality traits. Uh, you mentioned Derek Wujic's uh, Amber Diceless role-playing game, which, uh, as is obvious from the name, was Diceless. <laughs> there was certainly innovation in that period. But then you hit 1999, and it just broke loose. Um, and it went back to earlier things. I, I could keep listing the earlier ones. Jonathan Tweets, Over the Edge, uh, Hogshead's Publishing's New Style Game. These were all ones that looked at role-playing in different ways. But then I think because the indie community created by uh, Ron Edwards had these communities, uh, both online and in person in places like Gen Con, they could really bounce ideas off of each other. And so suddenly you had a lot of resource-based games uh, where, you know, instead of having a randomizer for if something succeeded, you decided when you wanted to expend your resources because the things were important to you. Uh, you had bidding games, which were another way to look at resource management. Uh, and you had a real flowering of this, what had previously been a very, very small part of gaming called story games, where you could suddenly say, hey, what, what if the games weren't just about characters trying to accomplish goals, but what if they were about a larger story? Uh, and so one of my absolute favorite games in the industry nowadays is a little indie game called Microscope. And Microscope is about creating basically a vast timeline of a world, uh, you know, a solar system, a universe, a planet, a city, whatever you want to do, but some type of vast timeline. And so you do have characters kind of bouncing in and out of these individual events that you're inventing for your timeline as you go along, but they're not the focus that this vast timeline is. And it's just one example of this huge innovation we've had. And one thing that I've really enjoyed seeing is that since Designers and Dragons was published, an increasing number of these indie ideas seem to be coming further and further into uh, more mainstream role-playing games. Part of that is companies like Evil Hat, who kind of made it big in the mainstream world, mainstream role-playing world. <laughs> but part of it is just, uh, you know, there was a system of games called Cartex Plus, which came out from Margaret Weiss Publishing. And... Uh, Smallville was one of them. And these were games that kind of tried to look through past the mechanics that we saw and past trying to simulate to instead say, hey, what's important to be able to tell stories? And so I almost feel like the indie revolution, which I write about a lot in Designers and Dragons, by the time we get through the tens is going to be done because role-playing has been, uh, you know, revolutionized to a certain extent by everything that's happened within the indie space in the last 10 to 15 years. Yeah, I mean, the, the way that one person in the book put it that I thought was interesting is he said that he thought that the Game Master had all the fun, and so he wanted to break down the barriers between players and Game Masters and, and have more of a democratic process for deciding which direction the story goes, rather than just having the Game Master be sort of the, the dictator and who dictates everything. Absolutely. That's a very important part of uh, indie design. Uh, I've been writing some work on uh, cooperative design lately with uh, a writing, writing partner, Christopher Allen, who, who I've also been working with. 
And uh, two of the terms that we use a lot are authority and agency. Authority says, who is it that gets to make the final decisions? And agency says, who is it that gets to drive the direction of the story? And in traditional role-playing games, the authority was absolutely entirely invested in the uh, game master and the agency was primarily with the game master though a game good game master could push some or much of it over to the players and one thing that a lot of indie designs have done and uh, particularly uh, the gmless games which are mentioned here and there in designers and dragons is that they have uh spread the authority out among all of the players, and they've also, in doing so, given everyone a lot more agency. You said earlier that it takes a certain kind of person to want to design tabletop RPGs in the current market. You said like you have to be willing to sacrifice yourself or something like that. Could you, could you say more about what kind of, since you know, you know all these people, what kind of person is it that is willing to keep designing tabletop RPGs uh, in, in the current market? I think the average designer of a tabletop game in the current market is someone who cannot not design games. They are people who are driven by their ideas, by their creativity, and they just can't help themselves. Um, they have all of these things bubbling up and they want to make them available to other people. Uh, I think they love the systems they're creating uh, they love the stories that those systems can tell. Uh, they love the fans who are interested in their stories. I feel like the role-playing industry, especially as it is in the uh, kind of wider industry, is very much a literal, figurative, labor <laughs> of love. That uh, it's uh, something that you just do it because you really want to. Um, and because you have that creativity, that design sense, all of those things that make a good designer. The role-playing industry has always had very small margins. Uh, I think a lot of people don't understand how very, very little an average role-playing company makes or an average designer makes uh, for a very lot of effort. Uh, but you just put those together and you get people in there who really want to be there because they have great things that they want to do. I mean, if you were to compare them to fiction writers or to video game designers, do you think that there's something about the, the social nature of the games that they particularly value? I think uh, obviously they must value the social nature of the games because, you know, fiction writers and uh, video game designers, they, they don't get that same social element. They're, I, I mean, increasingly video game uh, creators are making games that are used in social uh, uh, contexts since they're massively multiplayer games or at least uh, semi-multiplayer games. But there's a divide there that you don't see in role-playing games. And so, yeah, I, I think that the uh, average uh, tabletop role-playing designer is certainly interested in the social interactions that he creates so it varies from designers to designers. You you go to more the story game side, and there are people that are very interested in enabling people to tell stories. You go more to the uh, kind of uh, vampire and other side of things like that, and those are people that are much more interested in the social interactions. 
Right. Okay. So we're pretty much out of time. Um, do you have any other just um, any other final thoughts or anything, or will there be future volumes of uh, Designers and Dragons? Uh, there will definitely be future volumes. Uh, I'm in a bit of a hiatus right now because I'm working on a big move. Uh, but starting next year, I hope to get back to work. Uh, I have mm, four to five volumes that are well in process, kind of giving a history of every D&D product ever produced by TSR Wizards of the Coast. Uh, they were originally written for drive through RPG, and I'm compiling those into books. And I've also increasingly realized I'd really like to write a volume of Lost Histories, talking about some of the companies I just didn't have space or time for in the original four volumes. And also, there's only six months left of the tens. And so it's going to take a few more years to really see how they shake out. But I need to write a tens volume at that point. Um, as for final thoughts, um, I've always thought that the uh, name that we came up with for the books, Designers and Dragons, was very apt because the role-playing industry is an industry that has been defined by those two things. The designers are people who really love what they're doing and have these great creative ideas and, you know, are very, very important for anything that's produced in a way that I think is equaled only by a couple of other creative industries. And meanwhile, as we talked about earlier, we have all of these dragons, lawsuit, fraud, uh, you know, all of these other industries like uh, comic books, collectible card games, video games, which have impacted the industry. And so a lot of the story has been about these designers fighting against these dragons to produce these games that we all love and change millions of lives. That's funny that, you know, I was thinking it was pretty hardcore to write four books about the history of tabletop role-playing, but you're actually working on four or five books just about TSR Wizards of the Coast, so it's even more hardcore than I ever imagined. Yeah, well, I've always found that the easiest way to write a book is to write it one tiny bit at a time, and so Designers and Dragons looks impressive at four volumes, but it was only 100 articles that were written one at a time, and similarly, the TSR... Uh, slash Wizards of the Coast books uh, seem pretty intimidating, even as I look at them now. But it's a thousand articles written one at a time, and many of them were written for Drive Through RPG as they uh, published the entire corpus of uh, TSR and Wizards of the Coast uh, publications over the course of four or five years. And so, all I had to do was write two or three or four a week, and you know, five to six years later, you have the basis of a book. Yeah, well, it's it's a great series. I mean, you know, and we haven't even mentioned the, the production values are great. The cover art, the uh, the layout. Uh, I mentioned how many illustrations there are inside. I mean, they're just beautiful books and just an unbelievable amount of detail. And so, I would yeah, just strongly recommend, you. yeah, anyone who's interested in tabletop role playing games, and especially if you're interested in writing or publishing tabletop role playing games, you, you have to read these books, Designers and Dragons. And so, we're gonna wrap things up there. And so we've been speaking with Shannon Applecline. So Shannon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Shannon Applecline for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Anastasia Frolova and Matt Ray, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. 
And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.